Hey, it's good to see everybody in the house today, especially if uh, I'm causing that uh, echo thing, which is usually 50% of the time, it's me. We are here to worship and to bow down because Jesus Christ has defeated the enemy. We are on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, and there is hope for your life today. Are you glad about that? Yeah. Are you glad about that? I tell you what, today we are finishing up an eight-week series that we've been in uh, called The Story of God, and as we uh, focus uh, on the end of the timeline, I'm very mindful that uh, we've been talking about the story of God and trying to relate that to the story of our life, but that a lot of times the story of our life, if we put it on a timeline, we wouldn't be all that excited about. In fact, any of you in a story in life right now that you would like to exchange? I mean, maybe it has to do something with how well you're doing emotionally, or maybe it's something on the job front, maybe it's something on the, just the career world in general, or something uh, on the physical world. Are you enjoying the story that you're in right now? Or do you want to see some change? Some of us enjoying the story. Who said that? Who said yes? How old are you, Betty? 93. <laughs> I tell you what, if we could all get to be 93 and say, yes, I enjoy the story I'm in, then that's a good deal. How many would like to sign up for that, right? So if you are not 93 today, but you're like 23, 43, 63, and you're going, I don't know, my story's a little wobbly, you go talk to Betty afterward, all right? <laughs> and uh, you also need to look into here, because in the Word of God, in the story of God, covering 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, we have an awful lot of highs and lows that went on. And what I'd like us to do is to do a little bit of a review here today before we step into the final week. Um, you're actually welcome on your way out, or you can get up and go get it now. We um, have the timeline of the eight weeks that we have been walking through here on one sheet of paper. And the reason that I want to do a review is because one of our main goals in the last eight weeks was to make sure that we did not lose the sight of the big story amidst all the small Bible story. As A.W. Tozer said uh, on that previous slide, that the Christian needs all of the scriptures. And what he means by that is just not all of the scripture as it relates to knowing every individual part, but the whole bigger picture of it. And so if you want to pick one of these up at the back, you can. They're on that high top table back there. But we are going to do a review leading all the way through this timeline. How many of you remember in high school, college, comprehensive examinations? Some of you are in that right now. Now, there's a difference between an exam and a comprehensive exam, right? Now, an exam is like, oh, i got to study that chapter, memorize some here and there. But what happens with the comprehensive? 
you have to know the whole semester's worth of information. And so usually it was a semester exam, right? And the semester exam had a bit more weighted uh, uh, grade than the other exams. Well, you need to know this this morning. I am not going to give you a comprehensive exam. I would like to, to see how well you've been listening and how many parts you've been a part of, whether you're in-house or online. I'm not going to give you a, a comprehensive exam, but I would like to do a comprehensive review. And one of the reasons I'm doing this is because we need to make sure it's the big picture of God's story that we're placing our story in the middle of. And even if you have a broken story today and there is need for hope, you will find that hope in the bigger story of God in all of his scriptures. So here we go. You ready? You can follow along with me up here on the timeline, but we're just going to go back and we're going to read these summary statements that we've been putting together over these eight weeks. We begin with the creation and the fall. The self-sufficient and eternal God, he lovingly creates a perfect creation with humanity as his crowning work. Falling for Satan's temptation, humanity rebels and sin enters the world, bringing death, pain, and strife. Instead of giving up on humanity, God promises that from the womb of a woman, he will, will come the one, capital O, who will crush Satan's head. And then about 2000 BC, the promise and the people. God pursues Abram, or Abraham he was named to, a man from an idol-worshipping family who has no children with his wife and promises that he will be the father of many nations. God promises land to Abraham and assures him that all nations will be blessed through his offering. God continues to be faithful to his family. He restates the promise to Abraham's son Isaac and grandson Jacob who is renamed to Israel, a famine strikes the promised land. So Jacob and the family move to Egypt, where one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, is already there to provide for his family. I will bless you to be a blessing. I will make your name great. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. The Genesis 12, 1 and 2. 1400 BC, moving along, the family becomes a nation while living in Egypt, but also becomes enslaved to the Egyptians. God raises up Moses to lead his people to freedom. During a tenth plague, God strikes dead the firstborn son of everyone living in Egypt, but passes over Israel as they put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. After miraculously rescuing his people, God gives his people the law. He instructs them to build a tabernacle and offer sacrifices so he will dwell among them. Let my people go. God frees his enslaved people from Egypt, parts the Red Sea, and they walk towards the promised land. 1000 BC. Land in the kingdom. 
God brings his people through their leader Joshua into the promised land. When God's people worship the gods of the nations surrounding them, God disciplines them through the attacks of surrounding nations. God raises up judges or rulers to rescue his people and call them to repentance. They beg for a king to be like other nations, and God gives them Saul. God raises up a new king, David, and promises that the kingdom will never end. The family that turned into a nation is now a kingdom. David's son Solomon builds a temple to replace the portable RV tabernacle. 600 B.C. or before Christ. Exile and return. Solomon takes foreign wives and allows their foreign gods to clutter the land. His son continues the line of rulers and the kingdom is divided into the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom, Judah. Prophets confront the people, but they persist in their idolatry. The northern kingdom falls to Assyria and the southern kingdom is carried away into a Babylonian captivity. When they are freed, they return to a nation and a kingdom far less glorious than before and are still unable to keep their promise. And that on this timeline, it doesn't show it, but 400 years before Christ, Scripture goes silent. No prophets, no word. Jesus. A descendant of Adam, Abraham, and David, Jesus is the one who crushes the head of the serpent, will bless all nations, and reigns forever. Jesus, the God-man, enters humanity through the womb of a virgin, perfectly obeys the law that we could never obey, dies as the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins, and rises from the dead, conquering Satan, sin, and death. He inaugurates his eternal kingdom and rescues or secures salvation for his people. And then Jesus, his death, his resurrection, he ascends into the heaven, he sends his Holy Spirit, and we have a new people beginning with the birth of the church in A.D. 30. After his ascension to heaven, Jesus sends the promised Holy Spirit and his disciples turn the world upside down preaching the good news of Jesus. In the midst of intense persecution, the gospel spreads and Gentiles and Jews form a new people. Churches are planted in cities and apostles write letters encouraging and instructing the people in the grace of Christ and their response to his grace. And so begins... The birth of the church that goes around the world and why you sit here today with others. We worship, as we sang, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are a people of his very own. But then we get to the end. Well, it's not really the end. It says a better beginning, and that's where we're focused today. A time is coming where God's people, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, who have been rescued by Christ, will enjoy him and his rule forever. In perfect harmony, Satan will be crushed, the effects of sin will be reversed, and all things will be made new. And so we here today in our story are where? 
we are somewhere between A.D. 30 and the return of Jesus Christ in a better beginning. How's your story going? And if your story seems to be impaired, you need to step back and look at the bigger picture of your story. Not just in light of when you were born and where you lived then and how you've moved here and there. The bigger picture as it relates to being a part of the people of God and what he's doing through the ages to bring transformation of people of his very own. Actually, he is redeeming all that is broken, going back to the garden. And he is making all things new that we will share about here today. But to help us with that, I thought I'd take us back to a video clip done by the Bible Project related to heaven and earth, a new heaven and a new earth. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here, there's trees, rivers, mountains, but my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. 
animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible was all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. Literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. There is nothing wrong clapping for that because that's your story. <laughs> I read the back of the book and we win, right? How many of you like to do restoration projects? There weren't too many hands to go up. How many of you have flipped a house before? How many of you done renovations on your own house? Right? Well, restoration is very intriguing because you are taking something which is old and broken and you are renovating it and turning it into something very, very nice and hopefully more valuable than what it was before. Now, some of us were like, eh, 
nix the restoration. I'm just going to go buy something new. Especially in our culture today, because if something's a little bit broke, we're not going to sit and try to figure it out. It's just, you know, it's dispensable. We'll discard it, and we'll go get a new one at Walmart, wherever. So there is this whole concept of restoration that's rising through out the story of what God is doing. And for us to endear ourselves to his story, we need to know that God is not only the creator, he's a creationist, but he is also a restorationist. Is that a word? He restores things. And so a lot of times we're thinking about, oh, all that's happening in the world now, bad, 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 bad. Jesus, come again. Oh, God, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. And I like how it was depicted there on the Bible project because there's a concept a lot about I'm going to leave this old world behind and I'm just going to go to God's space. But you would have the story wrong if you think that your future as a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ is just about leaving this whole world behind and going to some new day. Because Scripture teaches us that God is restoring that which was broken back in the Garden of Eden, and it will be even more beautiful. And it's not a garden that's referenced in the end times or the better beginning. It's the city of Jerusalem, and we're going to look at that. I want us to just take time here today because, man, I could just embellish and get into this and try to paint it off. And I said, you know, Lord, help me. These people all want to probably get out and go to lunch and those kinds of things. So we're just going to look at three passages in Revelation in particular and try to unpack what this better beginning is. And the first one is in the book of Revelation. If you can turn to Revelation chapter 7, we are going to see the vision that the apostle John sees. The reason that we know that the better beginning is ahead of us and in part what that might look like is because the apostle John, one of the 12, saw a vision in his later years. Most of the, uh, the apostles, the original 12, they were killed, some martyred, those kinds of things. But John lived well into his 90s, they believe. And John was on the island of Patmos, and he has this revelation. It's called, why it's called the book of Revelation. There's a lot of imagery in it. But John not only had the vision to write the book of Revelation, but he had also written what? The Gospel of John, and then there's 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. He also wrote some letters to the churches. So we have, next to Paul, a fairly uh, decent amount of uh, writings that come from John to help us understand. And he's got context because he was there in the beginning when Jesus uh, called him off of the waters as a fisherman to be able to follow him. And so here he is, and he catches this vision of what the better beginning is, what the future is, and he's like, man, step back. Now, there's a lot of imagery, and we're not going to go into those kinds of parts, but in Revelation chapter 7, we find these words. These words uh, describe are on the heels of a picture of seeing a lot of uh, people that were numbered, but then it starts out this way. There's a second grouping of people, as it says in verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Let's stop right there. Remember the story back here when God came to Abraham 
And as I said in Genesis 12, 1 and 2, he says, I'm going to make your name great amongst all nations. I'm going to build for me a people. I'm going to bless you and those who curse you, I will curse kind of idea. And so from the very beginning of calling of Abraham's God's calling out this people of his very own. But he's not myopic and just saying, okay, I want just the Jewish people or the Israelites. What we're experiencing in our global news right now is quite astounding, is it not? And we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And we pray for evildoers to, in one sense, meet their judgment so that there would be peace and there would be freedom, not only with Jewish people, but with Palestinians and everyone. Evil has taken over the Middle East. And in our own nation and around the world, there's this rising up of people pitting themselves in different pockets as to being pro-Palestinian, pro-Jewish. And you see the clashing of all that's going on. And you say, where does the prejudice come from? Where does the resentment? Well, I tell you what, it's a part of the bigger story. And it's not just the story of what's materially happening in a natural world. There is a supernatural world happening right now around the world. And there are spiritual battles, collisions of God and his beauty and his plan and Satan and his advers uh, adversarial demons that are seeking to wreak havoc. And you see it visibly displayed, but you're never going to hear it talked about on the news from that perspective. I could sit here and talk to you a long time about it. I mean, it's, it's not just that perspective. The Middle East is what's happening in Ukraine and our dear sister down here, Alana, from Ukraine. There's evil that's happening and where is this coming from? Because there's this clashing of God's original plan. But his original plan wasn't to pick just one nation or one people. He picked the nation of Israel to bless all people. And sometimes people question, we don't have time to go into it, does God still have a plan for the Jewish people today? Because now we're the people, right? God's church and so Jewish. Friends, you would probably be surprised how much scripture speaks about God continuing on a plan for his original people. He's not going to abandon that. But his people, ultimately, are not one groupie. They are people, as seen in this vision by John, people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And they're standing before the throne. And who are they standing before? the Lamb of God that was slain from the beginnings of the world. The one who made a provision by which you and I can be saved and cleansed from our sins so that we can be in God's perfect heaven. You do know that in God's eternal realm, heaven, however, we're going to unpack it here. If, if you are there, if I am there, then it's no longer perfect because you and I are no longer perfect. Something has to change inside of us. And that change comes by the lamb whose blood was slain and Christ can come and enter our life if we turn our life over to him. And he begins to make all things new within us. And it's his righteousness that causes us to stand in a perfect heaven and eternity life. So this is part of God's big picture. It's part of the vision that's shown to John. John's teleported, if you will, in this vision to the future. And he sees a mass of people. I can't even count them. Look, 
People from everywhere. But they're united. They're united around what? The worship of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that's why you and I can go across the world. We can go in different sectors of this city. We can go into Southern California, into Los Angeles, and people from different ethnic backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds. We can be one in Christ. And that's the beauty and the vision that John is seeing as he walks through this first passage we're looking at in Revelation 7. And he says this, they were wearing... They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting. They cried out in a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You think you're going to be there? You think you'll be in that number? I encouraged about the review of the comprehensive exam, but here's something we can practice right now. And you're going to say, that's going to be really weird, Carrie. I'm like, you're going to have to get over your weirdness. You're going to be shouting that same phrase. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So you ready? You're going to repeat that same phrase. But you can't, I got salvation. All right, I'll do it, Pastor. I want to hear it. Because it was in a loud voice. So you ready? One, two, three. Salvation. Again. Again. Okay, I'll end there. You know, in the book of Isaiah, it talks about the vision that Isaiah saw when he was traveled, transported, if you will, into the presence of very God. And the angels and the cherubim, you know what they were proclaiming? They were proclaiming what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when that phrase got down, a bunch of other angels over here, they, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The whole earth is full of his glory. And they kept repeating that. And you would think to yourself, as somebody told me once, man, that gets sort of boring. I mean, you just repeated that phrase three times, and you're like, I hope he doesn't make us do it another time. <laughs> I remember when that passage was once explained to me, and you could see it explained even here as well in this vision as they're standing before the throne of the Lamb who was slain. It says, we might think that that's boring, but we need to understand that we have not seen what they have seen. If we had, we'd be begging to get their job. That's your destiny if you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. It's not make-believe. The Revelation 7 passage shows the people of God. Remember we looked at the book of Titus, that in Titus 2, that God is calling out a people of his very own, eager to do what is good, Here's the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. And there's people from every nation, language, and tribe calling out, raising their voice, holding palm branches, another Palm Sunday, if you will, right? Declaring salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb.
take your moments and your time to maybe glance through or read different sections of John's revelation. And it will encourage you. It also, in one sense, confuse you because of a lot of the imagery. And then there's heaviness to see what happens to those who are not followers of Christ and what happens to Satan and all things. But it will encourage you about your destiny because it's a part of your story if you are a follower of Jesus today. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you can be a part of that story if you'll turn your life over and commit your life to him. But heaven wouldn't be heaven for you if you are anti-Jesus. Because anti-Jesus, of which a lot of us maybe come from that background, or there's people around us today in your work environment, your school environment, people that are anti-Christ, anti-God, they wouldn't want to be found in this heavenly realm anyway. Because that's what it's about. It's about worshiping the lamb who was slain and being a part of his eternal kingdom. So that's one passage I wanted to reference as we looked at the better beginning. The second is in Revelation 21. And maybe you're a little bit more familiar with this. But in Revelation 21 then, we find these words. Then, then, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. I hope I'm not messing with your mind too much here today. It was given reference some in that video. But heaven is not some escapistic place that we go to. It's not like, oh, when I die, I go to heaven. That's not what this passage says. Yes, he said that to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. And there can be a lot of unpacking of that theology about, you know, the time before Jesus Christ comes back and the end of the world. Where's our soul at? Where's our spirit? Those kinds of things. But we know from the word that if we die absent from the body, present with the Lord, your loved ones who are in Christ are present with the Lord and we will meet up with them someday. But what's going to happen eternally on this right side of this timeline is not all of us being vacated out, going to heaven, sitting around on a cloud or hovering above the ground. Because this says what? The new heaven and the new earth, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw, John says, I saw the holy city of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Now that'll mess up some of the thinking maybe you grew up with. That if you're alive in the entire, you're not going up into heaven, but the heaven, the spirit realm of God is coming down on this earth. And this is where that restoration project starts to be created because it's a new heaven and a new earth, a new heaven and God's realm creating a new earth. You will not be hovering. You will be walking around. You will be hugging people. You'll be kissing people. You'll be praising people. You'll be, I don't know, giving elbows or high fives, whatever it is. You will be eating. Remember when Jesus, that he, he ate the fish after he rose? from the grave and they said oh my gosh he eats too well they thought he was a ghost or something he's not a ghost he was in his resurrection body scripture talks about the great banquet 
you will be surprised, I think, and I don't know where our theology or our Bible teaching got wrong, but this isn't like, vacate, beam me up, Scotty. No. This is the new heaven and new earth coming down and God doing restoration processes and we will live eternally with him, people from every language, tribe, and nation. We will declare his presence and his holies, the new Jerusalem, and there will be no night or day. We'll see in a second because the presence of God dwells with his people in this new place. And it says, as an analogy of this, of what's happening in this moment, is that it'll be as prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. It'll be coming together of we the people who are the bride of Christ with the bridegroom for eternity. And he's got plans for us. We're not sitting around just doing the high fives and eating. He wants us to rule and to reign with him, Scripture teaches. We will judge angels. We will rule over cities. I, I, God was the creator. He's the mastermind of the expanding Big Bang universe right now. He's, he's got plans going on, and you and I as redeemed people and him, we're a part of those plans, and we can't comprehend that. It sort of blows the mind when you try to figure out this end of this current timeline. But the better beginning is a beginning of something far more incredible than we can comprehend with our pea-sized human brains. And, and we need to get a grip that God's calling the people to himself as his bride to rule and to reign with him for all of eternity. And redeemed human beings will be above every angel, including the archangels, because we are redeemed. It says, then following that, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying in this city, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. I trust, as we've been on this journey of Scripture in these eight weeks, you can get an affinity and feel for this idea of being part of a people, of God's very own. If you're to look across this room today, some of you know several people, some of you may be brand new here today, and you're clueless as to who anybody else is. But in Christ, if you're there on that day, when heaven comes down, you will see us all as brothers and sisters, in the faith, because we are that. We are part of the people. We are the bride of the bridegroom. In God's dwelling, going back here to creation, remember he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve? And then Adam and Eve sinned and broke down their relationship with God. And, and when your relationship with God breaks down, your relationship with everything in life breaks down. Your relationship with parents, your relationship with peers, your relationship with the environment, what, it, it all crumbles and God comes back this restoration project and when they were walking around in their sin, remember God came and said, Adam and Eve, where are you? He missed his people, yes, but he wanted them to acknowledge that there was this brokenness of relationship. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. In the end, we have the coming of the new city, the new Jerusalem, 
right? And the new Jerusalem is marked by the same thing that creation was marked by. The people that were created by God living in the very presence of God. That's what the better beginning is. And it's revealed here afresh and anew in Revelation 21. It goes on and then it says this following, descriptive of what will be true of that better beginning. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. A lot of that going on even in this very room. Mourning, crying, pain, weariness of the old order that you live in. But you need to know that there's a hope. There is a day coming. And that day is one filled not just with superstition or legend or make-believe. It is a day that's filled with reality. And I love what this says then. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I am making everything new. And, and if you're at a place of hopelessness today, you need to grab a hold of that. Because God will make everything new. And all wrongs will be made right. Then he said to John in this vision, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He who said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. My people. But then I'd be amiss if I didn't tell you what the next verse said according to this vision, because this is a part of that sobering reality for the end times when heaven and the new earth are about being in the people of the people of God being in the presence of God because they want to be there they've chosen with their life in this life to be able to be a follower of Christ but it says the cowardly the unbelieving the vile the murderers the sexually immoral those who practice magic arts the idolaters and all liars they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur this is the second death so in articulating this great better beginning, you need to know that there will be a separation, a divide, as it says in Matthew 25, a separation of the sheep from the goats. And God will know clearly this is not up to some uh, panel of 12 uh, you know, people that are sitting in a jury box. God knows. Are you with me or are you against me? And so in this life, you make the choice or not. Do I want to live eternally with Christ and worship him, the lamb who was slain around the throne? Or do I want to continue to say, eh, it's my way? If it's your way, then God will in the end said, okay, you have your way. Depart from me. I never knew you. That's heavy. I believe there will be tears from that. But those tears will be wiped away because of the beauty of being in the eternal realm with the new heaven and the new earth. 
You know, it's um, really important that we grab a hold of the hope that we have in Christ. I think sometimes with our hymnology or, or our lack of hymnology or some of the songs that used to bring a lot of theology that we um, have lost a lot of that hope and it affects us in our current life. Heaven came down. You know that song? And glory filled my soul. My sins were washed away. I, I, I remember these songs growing up that talked a lot about the end here which is the better beginning. And, and there was a focus on that. But what happens in churches today, it's sort of just perceived, oh yeah, when you die, you go to heaven. But there's not a lot of articulation about this hope that we have. And we need to let that resonate with us. I came across this week, a pastor was articulating about a scholar, an African-American scholar by the name of Howard Thurman, who in 1947, he gave a lecture at Harvard University on the meaning of the Negro spiritual songs. And he wrote and he responded um, to some criticism that he received having been around and people were saying, yeah, but uh, a lot of those songs, those Negro spiritual songs, African American, they, they sort of keep the, kept the people in um, docile and submissive states because they were filled with this idea of heaven and they would sing about judgment, and they would sing about crowns, and they would sing about things of uh, future, end times, and, and, you know, that just placated them and said, you know, you calm down and just be good slaves. And Howard Thurman said this. He said, well, but the facts have made it clear that this faith that they sung about this faith served to deepen the capacity of the slaves for the endurance of their ability to observe, absorb their suffering. And it taught a people how to ride high in life, how to look squarely in the face those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope and to use those facts in raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that their environment, with all of its cruelty, could not be crushed. This enabled them to reject annihilation and to affirm a terrible right to live. And it's in his language there he's articulating this. Here's the reality. Those Negro spiritual songs written by slaves, sung by slaves, helped them endure the cruelty of what they were under in the slave trade. And it wasn't just wishful pie-in-the-sky thinking. It was the reality, the hope of the ending of how it would be a new beginning that stirred them up to encounter the difficulties that they had. I mean, you hear stories, you know, such as like, you know, two guys going into prison and they're sentenced to prison for, you know, maybe 10 years and one guy goes in and, and he finds out that his, his uh, wife and his child have been killed or they don't exist anymore and the other finds out that the wife and the child really care for them and want to visit them. The one that has no hope in family dwindles away in prison, but the one who has hope endures forever. 
Or you take a couple people, you throw them in a room and say, okay, here's your job. You're going to take this widget and you're going to put a cap on this widget and you're going to do that for 10 hours a day. And you're going to do that for a whole year. You tell one of the people, well, you do that cap on the widget and you do that for 10 hours a day for a whole year and your salary is going to be $20,000. You take the other guy and you say, you put the cap on the widget and you do that for 10 hours a day for uh, you know, a whole year and you are going to get $20 million as salary. Who do you think is going to complain after a while and say, forget it, I'm done doing this little cap on the widget? The one that has just 20K. But the one that's saying, ah, after a year I get 20 million? He's singing away, whistling a tune, and he's putting those caps on those widgets. Why? Because your hope will redefine your present reality. And this is the way it needs to be for us as believers, especially Scripture says we endure hardship in this life, but only for a present time. For our eternal glory is far outweighing everything that we're up against this very life. Maybe your circumstances and your story are not going to change this week, next month, even this year. But where is your mindset? Is your mindset on the bigger story of God and what he's calling you to, how he's redeemed you, and where you're headed with the new heaven and the new earth? Because those of us who are in Christ, we get something far more valuable than $20 million. And as with those African um, songs that pulled the people forward, they knew there was coming a day when those who were tormenting them and were unjust to them, that all wrongs would be made right and that they would dwell in the presence of God. And it wasn't make-believe. Friends, make-believe doesn't get you any hope, ultimately. It's just silliness. And what helped the Christians in the first century endure, especially when Domitian came to, to uh, rule in Rome, in the latter part of that first century, they were persecuted, they were put on sticks, tarred, they were lit up to light the city of Rome. They were thrown in the Colosseum and cheered as they were killed. How did those Christians persevere and how did those Christians end up being uh, uh, just awe, making people awestruck? How can you have peace and a calm spirit and hope? Is because they knew the back of the book and where their destiny was, and it rocked and changed the world. How can these Christians dare to stand so strong and still give peace? Did you see it this last week? One of the first hostages released, I know there's just been a few from the Hamas captivity, was a lady that was in her senior citizen years. And as they showed this Jewish woman being released by her Hamas captors to freedom, she shook their hand and said, Shalom. What's Shalom mean? Peace. An evil world has no answer for the peace of God in the midst of evil. The last passage comes out of Revelation 22. If you go just another chapter, and it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing down from the throne of God and the Lamb, and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. 
They will see his face and his name will be upon their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will be no need for the light of lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will, be, will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Remember the two trees in the beginning? It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's where the fruit came from that Adam and Eve sinned. The other tree was the tree of life. Pastor Trey shared about reference to a tree of life in uh, the Proverbs. Here at the end is the tree of life. And instead of the one river, there's multiple rivers and there's life flowing from it. The vision that the Apostle John had was incredible of the new city, the new Jerusalem that came down to earth. God is in the restoration process and he wants to give you hope today. And so I end with 1 Peter 1. 3 and 4, and Peter knew what persecution was and what it was like to be redeemed by the Savior that he denied when Christ was going to the cross. But Peter says in 1 Peter 1, Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into what? an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. In this inheritance, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Put your name there. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You hang on to your living hope Study about your living hope. Meditate upon your living hope. And it will enable you to endure the ups and downs of your current story. Because God is redeeming your story to bring Him glory in the end. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I know not where your people are in this room. But for those who are going through immense challenge, even unto almost slavery of what the predicaments are in their life. May they call out to you as their living hope. The one who was raised from the grave. The one who is making all things right. The one who will be worshipped face to face in eternity as the lamb who was slain. For not only the forgiveness of our sins, but for the healing of of the nations. Lord, may your grace and your peace and your encouragement and your power be applied to the individual lives in this room today or online who need to reach out and grab a hold of that living hope, knowing that the new heaven and the new earth reflects a destiny that's real and a destiny that has power to help us endure the brokenness of life today. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room or listening to these words who is not sure of what that means for them, because they're unsure of their relationship with you, may they choose to come into a relationship with you, Jesus, by repenting of their sin and turning to you. Bless them in their pursuit of salvation. And if today is that day of salvation, may they reach out and acknowledge the need in prayer to you, 
and with requests to maybe someone they came with or someone that's around them or that's a friend of theirs that's a believer this very day. So be it. Amen and amen. So comes to a close that message series. We're going to start something next week that's sort of tied in with the end because I just couldn't resist saying that's it. <laughs> so this is our message series for next week. Heaven, who goes there? And it's not necessarily all that much articulation about the new heaven and the new earth. But there's an awful lot of confusion, maybe even in this very room, of what it means and what it takes to really be one of God's people in the end. You have friends. You may have enemies that God's been working on you with to pray for that need to hear the good news of what we're going to be walking through for just the next three weeks. Because heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, this eternal destiny is available to all people, all people. And it's good news. But for a lot of people, they're confused. They think it's just be good, and you get to go to heaven. We're going to look at that. Who goes there? Heaven. Next week, invite your friends. We're going to invite the ushers to take their places to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings. I just want to give highlights on a few other things. The first is if you want to give your tithes and offerings to the Lord, you can do so in the baskets. Uh, here is our past. We're at the back, and um, I'm going to ask uh, Trey if he'd help with that. And um, we will uh, also receive things online if you want to text the word AWAKENING uh, to the number 77977. Wednesday night, we are finishing up the series uh, in our life groups. Uh, we're coming back the following week for sort of like a bonus week, but as we're walking through the eight weeks of studies that many of you have been doing, you can uh, finish those out this week. Even if you're new, show up. You can be a part of a group. And uh, we are going to have a meal at 5.45 again uh, every week. God's been providing the meal, and this week is Chick-fil-A. So if you want to come, you can come for Chick-fil-A at 5.45. And uh, we are going to have a meal together as the people of God and then step into our groups. And there's also youth group and child care. So come on uh, Wednesday evening at 5.45 or groups at 6.30. I want to remind us, as we had a highlight last week, that uh, Mercy Masika is coming, and she is from Kenya, and she is going to be hosting an afternoon of worship, and we are hosting it here at the church, but we are all invited as a church family, so don't hesitate to come and be a part of that. Also, Holly Bells and the Revelation Wellness has a girls' night out that's coming on November the 8th. You are invited to be a part of that, and you don't even have to be in shape, from my understanding. But uh, there's a lot of opportunity to, to just enjoy fellowship and some Bible study and interaction and, and do a few stretching kind of things. But it's girls' night on November the 8th, 6.30 to 8.30, which is right here. And then I just want to conclude by... Uh, giving an encouragement that uh, there is a need to um, pray. If there's a need to pray this morning, that you take opportunity to come here and someone will pray with you on the front right. 
On November the 19th, we're having a baptism service. On the baptism service is open to anybody who wants to declare their following of Jesus Christ in a public manner of baptism. If you've not done that, mark that on your Connect card. Come talk to me as a pastor, one of the pastors, and we're looking forward to that. We're going to have a great rollout for November as we move towards Thanksgiving. So with that, would you stand? And I want to speak over you. Palms up. And now may the Lamb who was slain, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one that we will worship around the throne forever and ever in the new heaven and the new earth, may Jesus Christ come through his spirit as a wind and bless you as you leave today. May you receive from the Holy Spirit the empowerment that comes from Jesus himself to go into the highways and the byways of life 